Hi, I'm Lorna Meehan, and welcome to Rebel Heroines, a podcast celebrating the rebel heroines of the Greek myths through original audio drama, poetry, book and theatre reviews, and interviews with fellow fans and creatives. In this podcast, the stereotypical and somewhat toxic heroes of the ancient world take a step back as we delve into the stories of the women who shaped their destinies. If you like your Greek myths seen through a feminist lens, enjoy creative adaptations of the classics such as the novels of Natalie Haynes and Madeline Miller, and agree that Hollywood hasn't made a decent movie set in antiquity since the original Clash of the Titans, this is the podcast for you. Hello and welcome to another episode of Rebel Heroines, the podcast celebrating the women of Greek mythology and the women who write about them. We're doing something a bit different for this episode. We are having a crossover episode with another Greek mythology podcast. This podcast is called A Temple Wild and explores the myths through the plants and landscapes of Greece. So without further ado, let's meet the host of A Temple Wild, Mira. Hello, thank you so much for having me. It's been great to get you on finally, because when I was deciding that I wanted to maybe do my own podcast, and I was like listening to other kind of Greek mythology based ones, your one came up and I was just fascinated by learning more about like plants and the herbs and the flowers and the trees of Greece and how they influence the myths. So I thought I've got to get you on to talk about this because it was just really fascinating. And you know, you sort of forget, don't you, what might have inspired these myths from the natural world. So yeah, I thought it was about time we did something a bit different on the podcast, learnt more about the landscape and the plants of Greece and how they inspired the myths. Before we get into that, I just wanted to ask you, what made you want to make your podcast? Well, I have always been fascinated by plants and herbs and also Greek mythology. My father was Greek, so I'm half Greek and half American. And, you know, I'd come here growing up as a kid and kind of been introduced to the myths, I think, in a way that a lot of other people do kind of through, you know, stories that you hear as a child, you know, or maybe through pop culture, through movies, you know, and things like that. And it wasn't really until I was an adult and I came here and started having a relationship with the landscape that I started to realize that the the stories I've been hearing as a kid, you know, they weren't these kind of detached, cerebral, cold stories. They were actually located somewhere. You know, they had a an intimate connection to specific places in the landscape of my ancestors. And so, you know, I just started kind of making these connections between the stories that I'd been hearing and the plants that I was making a relationship with, you know, here in the Mediterranean. And I was looking around online and, you know, trying to find resources on this and nobody was really talking about it. <laughs> You know, they weren't really talking about this intimate connection between the plants and the land and the myths. And so I just really wanted to start making that connection for other people that I was discovering myself and share it with others. Because I think, you know, you can't really understand the stories of a culture or a people unless you also understand, I think, the place in which those things have developed and taken root and sprouted from. 
getting into a temple wild i also started listening to your other podcast ecstasy vine about mm. raising the landscape of the body and i really liked in that podcast how you talked about this need that we have in us to descend as well as ascent yes there's a lot of stuff about ascension and sort of getting out of the body but i really liked the way you described that actually we need to get into the the darker the shadows self you know uh, and the body in order to ascend as well like descending is equally important you know that the lovely like Persephone undertones in that were really inspiring as well I particularly enjoyed the episode in Ecstasy Vine about plant familiars plants that you engage with every day that you have this like connection with and I sat there thinking it's essential oils for me I really got into aromatherapy over the past few years and then from there when I was like getting deeper into Greek mythology, started seeing all these connections about like these oils come from plants and these plants and these trees, what the gods and the mortals of Greek myths like interacted with. And this is another reason why, you know, all of these ideas came together where I thought I've got to take a bit of a deep dive into the myths from this perspective. And I thought a good one to start with, because it's one of my favorite essential oils. And I put it in my diffuser whenever I fancy a bit of higher communication with the gods and the higher self mm. and I want to get inspired from my epic poetry. Tell us about Bay Laurel and how that links up with the Apollo myth for you. So with the Bay Laurel, what I'd love to do first is to sort of place the story rooted in the landscape in Greece. And specifically the Bay Laurel in Greek, the word for the tree or the shrub is called Daphne. And so there's this origin story, right, between Daphne, the nymph, and Apollo, the god. And I'm going to tell you a little bit of the story, but I, again, I want to sort of place it in the landscape first. And it takes place in central Greece, in Stereia Elava, which is the region um, in the in the center of Greece on Mount Parnassos or Mount Parnassus in, in English. Daphne, of course, is a nymph of that area. But Apollo, when he shows up on the scene, he's kind of a new god on the scene, you know, just born. And he's kind of looking around for a place to call his own and to sort of claim as his sacred site and his temple. He comes here to Mount Parnassos and decides to just kind of claim this as his site. But it was first dedicated to Gaia, the mother goddess of the earth and the sky and the sea and the mountains. And there at that sacred site, she also had the great serpent, her child, the Pitho, and that serpent was guarding the site. And Apollo, of course, wanting to take over, he's going to slay the serpent, slay Pitho, and take over the area, claim it as his own. And so that's what he does. He kills the serpent, and Gaia is devastated. And she goes to Zeus and is like, your son has come and killed my child. I demand retribution. And so Zeus, in response, says, Apollo, you need to go and do the series of cleansing rituals down in the valley and, you know, sort of atone for the sin that you committed. And so Apollo is like, okay, sure, I'll do that. And he goes down into the into valley to do these cleansing rituals. And that's where he sees the god Eros. And Apollo's feeling kind of like high on himself, right? And he's kind of proud of himself. And he sees Eros with, you know, his little bow and arrow. And Apollo's like mocking him, making fun of him. And Eros is like, oh, ho, you think, you know, that you're so much better than me, you know, god who's killed the serpent, but we'll see. And so he shoots an arrow into Apollo that makes him fall in love with the nymph Daphne. And at the same time, 
shoots an arrow into Daphne so that she will be absolutely repulsed and detest Apollo. So now we have tension here, a problem, right? And so Daphne is fully Apollo, trying to get away from him. He's chasing after her, just lusting after her, wanting her love, and she's just horrified and repulsed. And so she begs Gaia, or her father, depending on the story, to save her. And so she becomes transformed into the bay laurel tree as a way of escaping Apollo's advances. But Apollo is still, of course, obsessed. I mean, he's just still in love with her. And so he decides to take part of the bay laurel tree, claim it as his emblem or as his sort of symbol of victory and power. And the bay laurel then becomes a sacred symbol of Apollo. And according to Pausanias, even his first temple was built actually out of bay laurel trees because he just had this lust and this love and and passion for Daphne. This is all happening in a place. I mean, this is happening on Mount Parnassos, right? Which if you've Mm -hmm. ever been there, if you've ever been to Delphi, it is one of the most beautiful places. I mean, the view from, it's sort of like an amphitheater in in the side of the mountain. You've got this stunning view of the valley. You've got the sea off in the distance. And you could see why Apollo would want to sort of claim this, you know, as his sacred site. And so, of course, that's what he does. I mean, there he builds a temple there. There's, of course, going to be a theater. He starts the Pythian Games. And Pythia, of course, becomes the Oracle of Delphi, the sort of famous oracle that everybody knows about. And of course, she's named after Pitho, the serpent that he slew, Gaia's child that he killed in order to take over the site. So yeah, so now we have this oracle there at Delphi. The site is now dedicated to Apollo. But I think that the story is very interesting because I think that it it kind of shows sort of the pre-Olympian god origin, you know, the origins of, of the myths and the stories that are happening there on Mount Parnassus before Apollo comes. You know, like I said, the site had been dedicated to Gaia before. And also there are some stories <laughs> that close to Delphi in a cave, very close to Delphi, just uh, maybe a couple hours away by walking, there were three nymphs that lived there, oracular bee nymphs called the Melissae. And they were apparently the three nymphs who taught Apollo how to do divination and how to tap into those oracular powers that he had and that the Pythia had. And what I find so fascinating is that one of those three nymphs, her name was Daphne. And so we see this connection, right? That one of the original nymphs of the mountain that had taught Apollo these sort of oracular, you know, practices was actually Daphne herself. And, you know, the Pythia later on, as Apollo's temple is established, um, she uses the bay laurel in her rituals. She chews them. She holds them as a rattler, you know, in her hand as she sits on a tripod over a cleft in the earth where these sort of subterranean fumes are coming up and she's accessing these altered states of consciousness through not only these sort of geothermal chemicals, but also through, you know, engaging with the bay laurel. So the bay laurel as a tree, it comes to represent a couple different things. On one hand, we have prophecy, obviously prophecy and clarity that comes through altered consciousness and direct connection to the divine. And then also on the other hand, we see that it represents victory, you know, because 
because Apollo sort of claimed victory over, over the site, Delphi. And, you know, we, we see crowns or wreaths of bay laurel is often given to the winners of the Pythian Games. We see them also on ancient coins, again, as symbols of, you know, victory or power. And of course, even today, Nobel, Nobel laureates, right? Or baccalaureates, that laurel, bay laurel, it's all connected and, and, you know, linked together, the symbolism of the tree. So, yeah, so it's, it's very rich, you know, there's so many nuances and so many little connections that you can kind of tie together there. When I use bay laurel, you know, when I get a whiff of it, it all makes sense really that what it was used for because it does sort of automatically smell like it's from another world. You know, it's like, wow, this is amazing. Maybe like most people's association with bay laurel is, oh, it's just that stuff I put in my curry, you know, like bay leaves or whatever, you know, (laughs) dig deeper into like, where's this from? When I interact with it, I can totally get this whole vibe of, oh, this is taking me to somewhere else. And I think, you know, to like the Delphic Oracle, like nowadays and, and you know, see that view and smell those smells like, oh, you can see how these myths intertwine and unravel in that landscape. Is Bay Laurel quite like prolific throughout Greece? You'll find it growing in the wild. It really likes ravines and wooded areas. It's more of a shrub rather than a tree. I think most of us, when we think of bay laurel, we think of like those, the trees that have kind of been pruned into these sort of, you know, balls or like strange arbor shapes Mm. and things like that. But yeah, no, it, it grows in the wild for sure. It has these incredibly beautiful, potent yellow flowers that bloom in the spring and just covered in bees. I mean, just the bees absolutely love it. Not only honeybees, but solitary bees, you know, and and as the pollinator for the tree. So you can also see there this connection also, like I was saying before, the melisai, which are the the oracular bee nymphs, you know, there's this connection there with the bees and the and the bay laurel. So and you were saying the the scent of it too. Yes, I mean, it's so clarifying. I think medicinally, people often use it to help with congestion and sort of opening up the and also with digestion and just kind of letting things flow more clearly, you know, and you can really see that again as a plant of, you know, oracular wisdom way to sort of clear the passages and sort of, you know, open yourself up as a channel for divine revelation. Yeah. And I love like with Daphne, because at first she's like, oh gosh, she like turns into a tree. Oh my God, the poor, the poor woman. Is like, <laughs> now she's a tree forever. But there's this sense of, I guess the symbology of it for me is there's the immortality of a God. And then there's the immortality of nature. You know, the fact that from then on, this tree, this plant, this shrub is there and we still use it today. So there's this long running joke on Rebel Heroines that I just managed to shove Dionysus into every episode because he's <laughs> favorite. You know, so here I go talking about Dionysus again, often another Dionysus <laughs> tangent. But I think there's so much in his mythology. He's such an unusual god in the pantheon and he represents so many different things. And to me, like what really stands out about him as a Greek god is this connection to land and nature where Mm. it's this worship of it and this reverence for it that a lot of the other gods just seem to be like, I'm just going to turn up and kill everything and be in charge. You know, Dionysus seems, you know, link right back to Rhea and Gaia of like nature worship. I really enjoyed your episode when you were talking about like fennel and pine and like the thyrsus, the symbol of Dionysus and how these plants and these scents were an intricate part of the Bacchanites and the Maenads like worshipping nature. So tell us about pine and mm. fennel. 
Yeah. Well, so the sacred tool that you'll often see, you know, mean ads, of course, were the the sacred followers of, of Dionysus or Dionysus. And so in depictions, you'll of, often see them holding a sacred thyrsus, a giant fennel stalk topped with a pine cone and wrapped in ivy. And so, you know, I mean, obviously it doesn't get more Greek Mediterranean plants than that. Maybe we can start with the pine. The pine tree is really one of the most common plants that you'll see here in the Greek landscape. And I want to just kind of pause for a second and mention that I think, you know, when people think of Greece, they don't really necessarily think of mountains (laughs) or green, you know, expanses of evergreen trees. I mean, I think most of the people that I encounter, they think of the islands. They think of the Kikladis, like Santorini or Mykonos, you know, these kind of barren landscape, whitewashed houses. But that's just a very small piece of what the rest of Greece is like. Greece is actually the majority of the landscape is mountainous. And there are incredible swaths of, of forest, you know, all over the place. Of course, there used to be much more. I mean, we're talking, we've had thousands of years here of humans civilization. And so, you know, land management practices have not been great even since the ancient times. So a lot of those ancient forests are now gone. But you will see pine pretty much at almost every altitude. I mean, you'll see it down by at the sea, at the coastal regions, you'll see it up at the highest peaks of the mountains, different varieties of pine, of course, there's about five ish main species that are here. And pine is just an incredible tree as a symbol of sort of resilience, and persistence and strength, but it was used since antiquity for its medicinal properties, for perfume, in culinary dishes, you know, pine nuts, as well as using the pine resin to seal the amphora, the ancient ceramic wine vessels, and of course in shipbuilding. Pine was associated not only with Dionysus, but also with Poseidon. But in terms of its relationship with Dionysus, with Dionysus, of course, the god of revelry and wine and viticulture, anybody who's listening to your podcast or he knows that because you have <laughs> such a passion for him. Pine resin, you know, in the ancient times and even in today, they used to add it to the grapes for flavor while it was fermenting. So you get this wine called Retsina here in Greece that is a pine flavored wine. In the ancient times, they say, okay, it was added for flavor. But I think, of course, it was also added probably for medicinal and its spiritual properties as well because of the, you know, the sacredness of the plant and its connection with Dionysus. So Dionysus is just one of those wild gods. He's not one of the civilized down in the city gods. He's up in the mountains frolicking, you know, in the pine trees and in the forests. And so that Menads, his followers are depicted with wreaths of pine, not just wreaths of vines. The other part I wanted to mention, though, the other plant, as you were saying, was the fennel. It's important to make a distinction here, though, because when we think of fennel, we often think of culinary fennel, which Mm. is the fennel that you would buy at the store and that probably is the essential oil that you're using. But the giant fennel is a a different species. It's a different kind of plant. It's in the same family as the culinary fennel, but it is not edible. Most varieties are toxic, so I would not suggest (laughs) eating (laughs) the giant fennel if you find it in nature. It's always important to know which plants you're working with because some of them, especially those in the carrot family, which is what fennel is in, are actually poisonous. They will kill you. So yeah, like, I mean, just like a bite will kill you. (laughs) So anyway, fennel is not that toxic, but it is toxic. So it's this huge plant. I mean, very tall. It can grow up to 15 feet and it looks like a, like a giant candelabra or like a flaming torch. 
Etymologically, though, the the word for it is narthex, and that I believe in its roots means vessel or carrier or a casket. And so you're mm. you know you're looking at this giant stock, right, which the Menads were carrying around with the fennel at the top. And there are a lot of people who talk about how it was probably used as a walking stick because it's very sturdy, very lightweight. So if you're drunk and you're kind of like waving around yeah. with your thyrsus, you're not going to be hurting anybody. But again, because of the etymological root of the word narthex, it kind of points to a different use. And the fact is that it, its stalk is hollow and it actually contains a pith that burns very slowly and evenly if you light it. So the Greeks, uh, the ancient Greeks, and also even shepherds, I think even recently up until today, you can carry fire inside of the stock. So it's a great way to sort of bring fire around with you while you're on the mountainside in order to, you know, light your fire while you're out with your goats, for example, in the forest. And again, um, I've also read that there are some theories that maybe they were using also hallucinogenic ointments or plants. Giant fennel is sacred to gods of fire. So we've got Prometheus, who we know, of course, is one of the ancient titans who gave fire to the humans, which really pissed Zeus off. And then also it's a sacred symbol and a sacred plant to Hephaestus, who was the god of the forge and volcanoes. So the giant fennel is associated with fire and with fire gods. And again, this bearer, this kind of carrier, this gift of civilization to humanity. I mean, fire, if you think about it, literally totally changed the landscape for what we we could do as a species. I mean, you know, we could cook more food, we could stay warm in the winter, we could seed inside of dark caves, just completely changed the landscape. We could forge things, we could make pottery. So giant fennel kind of becomes this carrier or this transmitter of craft and culture and humanity, really, the gift of civilization uh, that mm -hmm. Prometheus and Hephaestus in many ways brings to humanity. So what I find fascinating, though, is that it's in the hands of Dionysus, right? Bending all the rules about gender, he's bending all the rules about what it means to be in right relationship in terms of society and, you know, what we're supposed to, quote unquote, be doing as civilized people. And looking at the symbolism of the fennel and also even with that pine cone on the top, I talk about this in an episode in, in my podcast on fire myths, but I sort of see it as, as like a lightning rod, yeah. right? As this sort of divine rod that connects the lightning that, that sort of powerful firing inciting power of Zeus with the earthy sort of wild nature of the ground like you were saying before right about my ecstasy vine podcast about ascending and descending mm. it's kind of like this this sacred rod or the sacred channel that brings the the above and the below together and also if you think about Dionysus's roots as a twice-born god, yeah. right? And his, where he came from, right? I mean, he, like Semele, his mother, she was tricked by Hera into begging Zeus to show her his true form. And, you know, Zeus, of course, had made an unbreakable vow. And so he had to do that. And so he shows Semele his true form as lightning, fire, thunder, power. And she bursts into flames immediately and is incinerated. And so he plucks out of her their unborn child. And so him into his thigh and then months later Dionysus is born from his thigh. Yeah.
I think that's why he can be so gender bending, straddling that line between civilization and wildness, you know, and even mm. his other two plants, which I'm going to be my next episode that's coming up is going to be about this, the grape mm. and the ivy, you know, they yeah. represent these two opposites again, right? Grape being this domesticated vine, and then the ivy, that wild vine that just exists in nature and takes over everything. So I love the Onisos. He's just so juicy yeah. in terms of like looking at all of these, these tensions and these dualities so when i'm in like a sort of channeling epic poetry mood i burn my bay laurel i'm in my kind of okay let's get crazy let's get wild i put a bit of fennel a bit of pine in my diffuser i put dead yes dionysus everyone out there who loves dionysus listen to that album and i just full-on pretend i'm a maynard and dance around my crazy and afterwards i always feel as though something has shifted you know and and to me really that's what what Dionysus is all about and the the way he interacts with nature it is about that sort of transformation transmutation and Mm. and just embracing the the dark and the light as well leading us nicely into this relationship between like the light and the dark and going back to ascending and descending I think my favorite essential oil is Narcissus I think it's Mm. probably one of my favorites for the I love the floral oils but there's just something about Narcissus that's just Oh, the mist that um, Narcissus features in, I can completely understand why it has this effect. It's just very intoxicating, right? The, and even like the word as well, isn't it? Like the, the narc of it, that, you know, like narcoleptic, mm. narcolepsy, this thing of like, I'm falling. Yeah, let's let's talk about Narcissus and um, particularly with reference to, you know, we've got the myth of Narcissus, the man and mm-hmm. how that came to be the plant um so we've got narcissus and also how that relates to persephone and hades i mean again with placing the story somewhere you know narcissus actually was said to be the son of the naiad liriope who was a nymph of again this central greece region where we were talking about before you know mark panosos and daphne and apollo this region of central greece called sterea lava and his father was a river god the river Kifisos. So already we've got him placed in central Greece. He himself is from an ancient city of that region. And so, you know, again, we can sort of have this understanding of him as coming from the landscape itself. For those who don't know the story, of course, Narcissus was this like gorgeous youth. I mean, just absolutely beautiful. And all these people would fall in love with him. Women, men, everybody wanted him. Of course, though, he's pushing away everybody. He's not interested in anyone. He's just kind of, you know, turning the suitor down and turning that that suitor down. One of the suitors who is madly in love with Narcissus is absolutely devastated by his unrequited love. And he goes to Nemesis and begs her to punish Narcissus so that he'll experience unrequited love because he's just been turning everybody down and devastating all these hearts across the land. And so Narcissus, unfortunately, when he is wandering on Mount Parnassus, stumbles on this lake and he sees his own reflection and falls in love with himself. And He's just obsessed and in love and he will not leave the waterside. He's just, you know, kneeling beside the water, looking at himself, begging for his reflection to love him back. But of course, that's impossible. And so he dies there beside beside the lake. Um, some people say that he withers away and just kind of dissolves into nothing. And then in his place comes up the Narcissus flower. So we sort of have this origin story for the Narcissus. And the interesting thing about the flower is it's a perennial 
perennial bulb. You'll often find it actually along water sides and near water where it can kind of bend over and look at itself in the water, <laughs> much like Narcissus is sort of looking at his own reflection. But the thing with the Narcissus, it's one of the first bulbs to bloom in springtime. So sometimes you'll even see it coming up through the snow. And Narcissus, the word, you were sort of hinting to this before, but the, the root of the word, um, narke, it actually means to numb. So, you know, some people think maybe that's because, okay, narcissus, narcissus, it, but because the bulb itself has numbing properties, medicinally, it has some numbing properties. But you can also think of it in terms of we're coming out of winter, right? So everything has kind of been frozen and numb. And narcissus springs out of this numbness, this sort of beautiful flower that comes out of the numbness, much like he was numb to love. He was numb himself and numbing his own sensuality, numbing his own sense of love and his own capacity to feel desire. And but then was cursed, of course, for not letting that numbness melt and thaw. There's just an interesting symbolism there, I think, between the the flower and the roots of that word. And so again, like we were saying before, Narcissus has this very intoxicating scent. I mean, it's just this incredibly beautiful, rich aroma. And you can imagine Persephone, right? The springtime mm. goddess. She's wandering through these fields of early spring flowers, Narcissus being one of the first that comes up in the spring. And she's also kind of numb in a way to her own sen- her own sensuality, right? I mean, she's, you know, a young maiden. She's kind of been protected by her mother her whole life. She's enjoying life, sort of carefree life with her other nymphs and maidens that she's got in her company. And she's in this field of Narcissus when Hades comes and takes her. So what I think is interesting, though, about the story that not a lot of people mention, when they talk about it, they often sort of mention, oh, okay, Hades came and snatched her away, right? He, he, he came and stole her. But before that happened, Hades actually went to Zeus <laughs> and said, hey, brother, I'm looking for a wife. You know, I really want Persephone to be my wife. And so we're talking about back in the day when arranged marriages were not very uncommon, right? So Zeus mm-hmm. is like, okay, sure, you can have Persephone. Her mother's not going to allow it, though. So we need to kind of find a way for you to get her without her mother knowing. And so Gaia conspires to grow this field of Narcissus so that Persephone will be led away from her retinue. She'll be alone and kind of wandering through this field of flowers. And that's when Hades comes. So Gaia, the earth itself, has kind of conspired to allow, if you will, the taking of Persephone to the underworld. Mm-hmm. Tellings of the stories, a lot of sort of feminist and, and modern retellings, they, they focus on the rape aspect or the abduction aspect, how Persephone was taken against her will and there was no consent and, you know, all this stuff. But, you know, I like to look at it from a slightly different angle instead of focusing mm-hmm. necessarily on her awakening sexuality. And I like to look at it more as her awakening to the life death cycle because yeah. Persephone is primarily is a springtime goddess. Her mother is a goddess of the harvest and of agriculture. When she becomes abducted, she's taken down into the underworld and then becomes queen of the underworld, which is a place of death and decay. But it's also if you look at the word Avis or Hades, Avis, it means the unseen. So it's that which is unseen. It is under the ground. It is the roots. It is the soil. It is that 
earthen place from which all things from the earth sprout, all bulbs, all trees, all plants, all flowers, they come from nothing. They come from that dark soil, that rich, fertile soil. And so as a springtime goddess, we have, again, this little polarity, like you were saying, between the light and the dark. She's this springtime sweet goddess wandering through fields of Narcissus. She's taken by, by Hades down into the underworld, to the darkness, to the unseen realms, where she's faced with mortality, where she's experiencing death and seeing death. And then she, of course, comes back again in the autumn after, you know, Demeter, her mother, of course, has been looking hysterical for her forever and is trying to find her. She turns the earth barren and says, okay, unless you return my daughter to me, nothing else will grow. And Zeus says, okay, fine, she'll return to, to you and to the top as long as she hasn't eaten any Anything from the underworld. Unfortunately, while she's in the underworld, she eats a pomegranate seed, thus tying her forever to the underworld. So she has to spend half of the year down in the darkness and half of the year up in the lightness. And again, though, this polarity, I mean, Narcissus being that first bulb, that first plant, that first flower that blooms in this connection to Persephone's very sweet and sort of a youthful nature. And then, of course, her connection with the pomegranate, which is one of the last fruits of the season before everything starts to turn to winter and she has to return back into the realm of the dead where she is queen and oversees the realm as Avis is equal. I think that's the other thing people don't really remember is that yes, okay, Persephone was abducted. Yes, she was taken to the underground, but she comes back as an equal, as a queen in her own right and in yes. her own power. And a I lot of rich symbolism there. Yeah. And I've always thought that with Persephone as well. And I, I talk about it in my Persephone episode, one way of looking at it and reading it. And But you go deeper and there is this sense of what does she symbolize? And yeah, you do have that whole thing about sexual awakening and the journey of mm. girl to woman. Yeah, there's there's something very interesting going on underneath that, literally about her discovering and exploring her own darkness the yes wealth of the life and death experience and the fact that she then has the privileged position of being a god who walks between those two worlds and still has this connection to the surface earth through her mother there's a lot of beautiful empowering nature goodness going on there for me and just to link this episode to a previous bonus episode there's a really brilliant novel called no season but the summer by Matilda Lacer, which updates the Demeter and Persephone myth to like rural England and some really nice kind of link ups between this ancient myth and climate change and asks like if let's assume you know that this myth is real and that it's happened what if it's still happening now and what does that mean in terms of climate change and there's a lot of really wonderful stuff going on in that novel as well from this other perspective of Persephone so I definitely recommend that novel and it's been really lovely to kind of again link up these ideas in terms of this deeper connection to nature just to wrap up I'd like to ask you Mira what is your favorite plant or tree or flower of Greece if you can mm. pick one <laughs> Well, we, we actually spoke already about um, a few of my favorites, but I will also mention pomegranate and the asphodel, which is another springtime flower, which was said to also be in the same field with the Narcissus when Persephone was taken to the underworld by Hades. And the asphodel has connections with Ekati, the goddess of crossroads. Yeah, if I had to choose, it would be the pomegranate and the asphodel, plants, plants associated with Persephone and this this obvious, mm. you know, Ekati, the, the whole story around all of them. 
your, we've talked about you know like the the landscape of Greece. Where is your favorite place in Greece? Thought about that question a lot because I, I get asked that a lot, and it's always so hard to answer because uh, Greece is so incredible in the sense that it's so diverse. The south is so different from the center, which is so different from the north, and you know each of the different regions have their own their own music, their own culinary traditions. It's just there, there's so much richness all over the country. But where I live, which is in the far north, a region called Eastern Macedonia, I live near the city of Kavala, which is just a couple hours east of the. Thessaloniki, where some people know where Thessaloniki is. Um, so I'm pretty close to the Bulgarian border. But I live on the side of a mountain called Mount Pageo. And the mountain has connections with Dionysos, Dionysus, and also with Orpheus. And so there's just so much rich history here. And it's it's so beautiful. It's not an area I think people think about when they think about Greece. They don't think about the north. It feels much more Balkan up here, if I can say that. I mean, you just, and it's, it's such a crossroads too, because we're so close to Turkey. So, you know, you get this beautiful confluence of all of these different cultures coming here in this area. So yeah, I always encourage people to look north when they come to Greece. But I think the north is one of the most beautiful underrated areas in the country. It's just there's so much incredible nature up here, incredible waterfalls and hikes and forests. And yeah, it's just beautiful. Finally, what is your favorite Greek myth? I would have to say the myth of Persephone and Aves. Not so much Demeter. <laughs> I have strange feelings about Demeter. I don't know. Maybe <laughs> it's like the overbearing mother situation. But the the connection between Persephone and Aves, I just find, you know, so incredibly rich. There's just so much depth in there in, her, in Persephone's story specifically. Her journey through this life-death cycle and connecting to the earth and the underworld and, you know, the unseen dark things inside of ourselves that we tend to try to avoid. I think as a culture in the West, we typically are afraid of death and we we avoid any kind of talk about it or any, you know, thinking about death. And so any story about Persephone and Avis that kind of brings that reality of the life-death cycle into, yeah. into our consciousness, I think is really rich, deepens our experience as humans, I think, on the land, awareness of the seasons and how we're a part of all of it. We're a part of this whole cycle. Again, it's just more proof that, you know, these Greek myths endure because we are all so achingly human. Wonderful. So thank you so much, Mia, for talking to yeah. us about the landscape, the plants of Greece and how it all links to the myths. Tell us a bit more about your podcast and what you've got coming up. Well, my website is called templewild.com. So that's where you can find, it's my hub, where you can find everything, my journals, my blog entries, my podcast. It's actually been a few years since I recorded a podcast episode because I've been traveling quite a bit outside the country, but I'm back now to Greece. <laughs> and so I've been working on the next episodes, which will be coming out hopefully here within the next couple of weeks, um, as Wonderful. I mentioned about Dionysus. Yes. So, so the podcast is starting up again very soon. But yeah, yeah, so my, my blog is the best place to go at templewild.com. You can subscribe to my newsletter. I send out a newsletter every full moon. Wonderful. Thank you yeah. so much, Mira. And I hope that everyone listening like does check out a Temple Wild. Thank you so much. Thank you so much for listening and do check out both Mira's podcasts, A Temple Wild and Ecstasy Vine.
We will be back in September with the Warrior Women episode and we'll also be having another crossover episode taking a deep dive into Artemis with the Goddess Project podcast. As well as that, I will also be putting up an interview with Emily Hauser, the author of the Golden Apple Trilogy, about her new non-fiction book, Ancient Love Stories. So, a lot of good stuff to look forward to. I'll see you soon.